it's exactly what he ran against. You know, he he said Donald Trump was destroying our institutions, and now his the progressives in his party are asking him to destroy institutions by ignoring them, <laughs> going around them. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. And welcome to Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. I'm your roundtable host, Joe Arnold. We are recording this podcast on Thursday night, July 21st, 2022 at 10.13 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time with Sean Southard, Kevin Grout, Jared Crawford, and Scott Jennings. Scott, we have some breaking news, of course, uh, throughout America today, and that is the President of the United States, the second president in a row, in fact, has been diagnosed with COVID-19. Yeah, uh, President Biden today, uh, I mean, look, it, it felt inevitable. I mean, in some ways, it's shocking that it hasn't happened before, given the number of people that President Biden interacts with and the amount of virus that's currently circulating. Uh, you know, I do think it highlighted that we have entered a phase of this where uh, Joe Biden got coronavirus, but because he had gotten his vaccines and because he has access to medical care, because he has gotten on Paxlovid right away, um, it highlighted the fact that we have turned this into an extremely manageable situation. You know, um, hospitalization rates are low. Mortality rates on this thing are currently low. I mean, a lot of people are getting it even in present, but, but we have, thanks to medical science, uh, figured out how to, how to manage it as a society. So that's unequivocally a good thing. And uh, we don't know exactly where Donald or where uh, Joe Biden got it. Uh, but, uh, but a lot of people I think are experiencing this right now, you know, sort of surprising themselves to find out they have coronavirus. I know, gosh, Joe, you had it recently. Uh, several other people in my life that I've known have tested positive for it lately. So, I wasn't shocked. I don't know what the rest of you guys thought. I, I wasn't surprised at all. And frankly, I'm, I'm uh, more surprised that it's taken this long for him to get it. John? I wasn't really shocked about it, kind of like you, Scott. But, you know, I'm, I'm worried about him. I'm worried about him because, you know, obviously he's older. He disclosed yesterday that he has cancer uh, during. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> um, let's, and, let's be clear about this. This is a this is a Biden-esque comment that's less about facts than it is about let's just say a questionable memory, but go ahead. Well, I mean, the man said it. I mean, didn't he say that the words of a president matter like when he ran for office? I mean, I'm just, just quoting him here, Joe. Uh, no, I mean, in all seriousness, I hope that, I hope that it's a, it's a mild case. It continues to be mild that, that, uh, you know, we have great uh, technology now, vaccines and, and, and uh, pharmaceuticals that are going to help take care of him. But um, you know, it was interesting today. Uh, I don't know if any, other uh, of you all caught on the podcast, um, the press conference today where they had uh, the White House press secretary and the COVID czar come in and talk about this. Uh, and they, they got very frustrated with the White House press corps for asking very basic questions about the timeline of when the president started to feel sick, uh, when he uh, tested positive and did he have symptoms before or after and that sort of thing including to where the White House press secretary said at some point, it doesn't matter when he started feeling sick. It doesn't matter when he tested positive. You are trying to make connections and make a case for something that, that is not important. And, and I think it's just very interesting to hear these people who, who, when Donald Trump was president, 
went after every single thing. Uh, the Democrats did it to, to the, the former president and the White House press corps did it to him about trying to like nickel and dime or trying to figure out every single factoid and figure out a timeline. And and it just doesn't matter now uh, if, if you're a Democrat in the White House. It just is like, oh, it's OK now because he's a Democrat and he's he's got COVID. I mean, it just, it's a little ridiculous to me. Kevin. And I think you could make the argument that we're in two different phases of the virus. Uh, you know, when President Trump got COVID, it was October of 2020. It was pre-vaccine. Um, but at the same time, the White House didn't make President Biden's doctor available. They, they had, you know, a public health official, the czar, and then the uh, uh, flack, the press secretary, come out and talk about it. And then, like, like Sean said, couldn't answer or didn't want to answer some very, very basic questions about the transmission of the disease. And it not... It not only is their institutional response interesting, the, the media's response and like kind of letting them get away with it when everything about when the President Trump had the virus was a five alarm fire. And, you know, if, if they would have deigned to not have the doctor out there, um, I, I don't know what the media would have done. They would have would have just basically started writing Trump's obituary at that moment. Scott. Yeah, I, I think that um, the difference between Trump and Biden is, if, you know, at the time Trump got it, if you guys will remember, and, and I think this is one of the saddest things about the entire response to coronavirus, there was a long period of time where a lot of people in the media, a lot of people in the punditry class, a lot of Democrats basically treated you, if you got coronavirus during that time, like you were immoral, like you had some moral failing, like you were a bad person, like you you hadn't clutched the talisman hard enough. You hadn't done the rain dance enough. You hadn't told the coronavirus all the things that it needed to hear. Unclean, and that's why, unclean. And that's, but that, that's what was, remember, that's what was going on. And so obviously they thought Trump had not properly engaged in the uh, witchcraftery <laughs> that they thought was necessary to defeat coronavirus. They thought coronavirus was a political virus. They thought that it understood our politics. They thought that, that it was going to uh, be able to discern between the moral and the immoral. And so that's why they treated Trump that way. And now that Biden has it, I still think that impulse is somewhere inside them. But what's the difference now is that between now and then, every one of us has had it, maybe twice, and uh, including the people who used, to, who used to sort of enforce that regime. And so uh, I think that's one of the reasons why you see them treat Biden in a different way, because uh, back then it was, oh, if we just if we just all uh, say the right things and have the right politics, it'll pass over our house. Uh, and obviously that's they, they all learned a hard lesson. Viruses don't know about our politics or debates here in America. Jared. Yeah, we also have to just mention like very quickly, like it was a month ago that Biden was on the beach, like by himself wearing a mask. I mean, uh, I, I don't know if we've talked about, we, we talked a little bit about mass mandates, I think last week, but the San Diego school districts bringing mass mandates back. I mean, it's just like, it, there's so much of this like strange theater that's still going on too. And, and why we can't just like sit back and be like, yeah, like there's a chance you're going to get it, isolate, take the medicine and go back to work. Like it, it's so strange to me, the theater that we can still continue to do. And, you know, even Biden today, like the, uh, doing some of these videos about him still working, not wearing a mask, which of course is against the recommendations of the CDC. That was the, you know, the, the Holy Bible for the last two years, apparently. I mean, it's just so strange to me. And, and again, this, this, this like, like Scott said, you know, the idea that 
you were careless or you were a bad person if you got this two years ago. I mean, it's it's all very strange. Kevin? I, uh, I, well, let me ask one question for the group because I'm interested in everybody's thoughts on this. You know, at this point, um, I think what you said, Jared, is true. I mean, it's, it's quite obvious that you can do all the things. Get the shots. You know, even people wearing masks. I mean, as you pointed out, Biden probably wears a mask more than most people, although his mask etiquette has been bizarre. He'll wear mm-hmm. it when he's standing outside by himself. But then when he approaches a group of people, he'll take it off, yeah. <laughs> which is which is when you would have. But let's 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 argue for argument's sake. He say, has to be able to sniff people, Scott. <laughs> 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 he has to execute his, his sniffing duties. I, I, I just what I what I am thinking we're still grappling with. And, and we saw it in the response to it by Biden today. I mean, they put a photographer in a room with him. Guy's got coronavirus. They put a photographer in there. But we still have corners of our society that are still basically acting like we don't have a vaccine. We don't have uh, Paxlovid. We, you know, we don't know all the things we know. I mean, I'll just tell you, I, you know, whenever I do my CNN appearances, I have to take a test before I walk in to the studio. Now, um, I've always tested negative. But I have imagined, you know, I have to fly to New York. I have to fly to Washington. I've, I've always imagined that it's more than possible that because of all the you know, transportation and interactions I have to have to get here, that one of these days I'm going to test positive. Now, I've had it at least once that I know of because of the antibodies in my blood that were detected in May. But, but you know, the reaction to that would be to send me home. Like, I would have to, I would have to leave immediately. Um, I don't know. I'm just wondering about what your all's personal interactions are in life. You know, if you get it, like what, what do you anticipate what happened to you at that point? And, and are we ever going to get to a point where basically um, if you have a, I mean, according to them, Biden has a mild sniffle. That's what, that's why they're, they're, he's got a sniffle. I want to, I want to get to Kevin here in one second with his response to Scott, but I'll tell you this. I do think there is an opportunity here, even though double standards abound, with the treatment of President Biden versus President Trump, there still is an opportunity here because it's through the the example of and the experience of the uh, our our septuagenarian president, almost eighty years old, I guess uh, this fall, is to say that after he comes through this fine, and we realize that the therapeutics are out there, and that we are now living with COVID rather than trying to you know live in a zero COVID world. This, I guess, is an opportunity for us to finally turn the page. So I'm not saying it's a good thing that he has COVID, but in terms of, you know, the, the good that, that can come out of some experiences, I, I think that perhaps we can all learn from this. And it took too long. And there is a double standard with the way this president is treated with this situation and the other one. Kevin's point is very well taken from before, as we certainly didn't know anywhere near as much as we know now. And there's maybe we're on five or six more variants since the original one in pre-vaccine times. But Kevin, go ahead. Yeah, Scott, you, you ask a, a, a very interesting question. You know, when, when COVID came to our house, it was uh, we all kind of locked down, isolated the affected and just tried to wait it out. I don't know what you would be forced to do in um, when, when you're in New York or D.C. I assume you would be immediately ejected from the building onto the street. And then whether you rent a car and, and drive home or stay in a hotel somewhere, um, it, it would be very interesting. Um, but but, well, it, it, you, but you, well, you raise a good question because, look, I, I mean, let's just pretend you you tested positive. I mean, if if you went to a train station or an airport, 
and flew home. I guess that, I mean, I guess they would say that's the wrong thing to do. Uh, but at the same time, given the, the rates of positive tests we have right now, given how much virus is circulating, I mean, it's a fair bet that no matter where you go today, a bunch of people in that place have coronavirus. I mean, whether they know it or not, they, they probably have it. And so I guess, I guess, Kevin, the question, that, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, is at what point are we going to, at what point are we going to end the testing, I guess, is, and, I, and I don't mean that people shouldn't get tested if they think they're really sick, but I guess, I guess that's the, I don't know. I, I, I just think it raises a whole bunch of questions about how, how many, how much longer can we go where you are isolating massive chunks of society up to and including the president of the United States over a disease that is, that is treatable just the way we treat virtually everything else. Now, I guess the counter argument is, well, you won't know you have it unless you test for it. But I, to me, it's less about the testing than it is about how we're treating the people that get it in the moment. I don't know. I may, and, maybe and, there's and, no and way for, around it. And for that matter, as we get to Sean, for that matter also, it's just like, just because you have COVID doesn't mean, I mean, what is COVID now in this, in this new very, you know, strain of it? Because in the, in the long run, it has to do with how many people are getting really, really sick than it is about what a diagnosis is. Sean? Well, we're, we're also still like, I feel like we're so even like far removed from even that possibility, Scott, because we're still in a position where people are like, you know, I'm going to tweet out the fact, here's a public statement that I have it. When mm -hmm. we have all of these amazing technologies and tools available that, you know, you're going to have a mild case. And of course, you should let your co close contacts know if, if you have contracted the virus. But we're still at this point, it's like it, it, it is a self-flagellant sort of situation where it's like, I, again, I'll, I'll admit I got the COVID. I had three vaccines. I did the I did the, the two and then I did the booster and I got it like three weeks after having the booster. And, you know, I mean, I, like I did, quote, everything right. Uh, but it was still, it was like, you know, I went and told all my contacts, that sort of thing, but we're still in this moment where, where it's everyone like, oh, I need to like do a press release about the fact that I've had this, even though I've, I've, I've done everything right. And, and I feel like we're so far removed, Scott, from even that sort of possibility that you've talked about where it's like, we're stopping testing or not making a big deal out of testing, that sort of thing. I mean, it just, it, we're, we're, well, you, you, you're raising the thing though, that I'm, it's like on my mind, which is at what point does this cease to be? a press releasable item, which, oh. which is, which is sort of a, a, um, it's a representation of, of the fact that it, we're still treating it the way we treat it instead of treating it like we treat many, many other things in our lives, you know, a minor, mm -hmm. uh, inconvenience and we move on. I mean, we don't issue a press release every time one of us gets the flu or one of us well, part, you know, breaks, part a, of the Scott, breaks an it, ankle. Is, is it <laughs> yeah. part of this, Scott? The, I mean, you say we, but who is 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 saying all this? Who is being so public about? Well, our, I mean, our politicians are number politicians one. Politicians and and the mass media, and 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 this is the situation where there's an expectation of this kind of transparency. And you still had on the on the cable news networks uh, today this sort of this almost this retreating back to. I felt like COVID for a little while there on the the breathless reporting of the president's diagnosis, like we had gone back a year. In this pandemic, like we, yes, it was, yes, like, it, some of the coverage, the coverage was almost like, oh, he's 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 gotten this new and strange disease, and let's right. have a doctor on to tell us what right. can we expect. I mean, look, we're, I mean, we all know what to expect. Like, I, I mean, it, it right. was it was really weird. It, you're right; it felt like we had gone back in time, 
And the reality is, it's. I mean, I hate to, I hate to like minimize it, but it's a thirty second story. He got COVID. He has a sniffle. He got the shots. He took the drug. You know, he'll be fine in a couple of days. That's it. That's the story, and it's a good thing that that's the story. And it's almost, I almost got the feeling in the coverage today, like people were like, oh, you know, they were straining for someone to say it could be so much worse. You know, it could be, it could be, it could be, it could. Well, if you do all the things you're supposed to do, ninety plus percent chance it's going to turn out just fine, right, Jared? Yeah, Joe, it's it's sort of ironic that you say it felt like we were a year ago, because if this was a year ago and it was the Omicron variant, we would probably be pretty concerned here. I mean, with Biden's age uh, and the the seriousness of that variant, we we probably should be concerned at that point. Right. I mean, just given the sort of statistics. Right. But it, at this point, it really shouldn't be a story. Like Scott said, it should be sort of 30 seconds. OK, cool. And move on now. Biden's administration has an ability to mess things up and make bigger stories out of things that shouldn't be stories. And, you know, the inability to, to contact trace him, but they can, you know, force third graders to, to contact trace and those sorts of things. Um, so, you know, they made a bigger story out of by, by messing things up, but it, it really should have been quick. He's done. He's okay. Mild symptoms. We'll see him in a few days. Kevin, and then we're going to get to Sean about the new poll out this week, Quinnipiac which we're going to ask you, Sean, what did Joe Biden rank highest on in that poll? But first, first to, uh, to Kevin. I was just going to say, Jared, if this were a year ago, we know what we'd all really be concerned about is that if Biden was really out of commission for a while, Kamala would be in charge and that would be a real problem. <laughs> and that affected some, some, there are some, you know, certainly people who are asking about that today as far as what's going to happen. But I will say as we, before we get to the Quinnipiac poll, and this goes back to what Scott was saying earlier. The other thing is, though, is that even though COVID, I do believe we can move on from this. There is always there is going to be. and I'm convinced now that the longer this has gone on, this has become a dogmatic type of belief uh, or, or kind of recalibration of, of some people's expectations about this particular virus and and, and disease, I guess, in general. I don't know. In the sense that this will always be here for some people. There, there will always be this, this, I mean, I, I, I'm convinced now that it'll be 10 years from now and there will still be some sort of, of, of carrying this forward by the folks well, who are convinced for it. There, there are people, Joe, who, who I think, and look, the Chinese government still clings to this, that, that you're going to have a world of COVID zero where basically, you know, if we all just, I mean, just the other day, somebody, I saw, who was, I saw somebody on Twitter saying, if we all just masked for two weeks, it would go away. Man, where have I heard that before? <laughs> you know, it's like, right. I, I, there's, there's the, there is a group that, that is clinging to this COVID zero idea when it just doesn't seem like the virus is going to let us do that. Human activity doesn't allow for it. And so what we've done is, is what we do for every other disease, manage around it. Right. And, and well, by and the as, way, we've done a pretty amazing job at it, truthfully. Well, as Jerry pointed out uh, a moment ago, and then we got to Sean, is the, uh, the the virus in some ways is taking care of itself. I mean, the, the, the fact that it's becoming less, it's, it's, it's perhaps more virulent, but it's less severe, you know, and we can basically, we can handle it moving forward. All right, Sean, let's go to the Quinnipiac poll that this week, uh, the bad news for President Joe Biden is that uh, he has the lowest yet ever uh, uh, job approval rating of only 31%, 60% disapproved, but there is an area that he's cracking the 50% mark as far as how he's handling uh, American uh, challenges. And what's that? 
Well, it's he's at exactly 50% for his right? job approval on his response to the coronavirus. Whoa, that's bad timing. It's not good. Not not good because I, I imagine that number will dip a little bit more after after uh, today's news. Uh, will it though? I mean, I mean that that's a, I, I've been wondering the same thing, knowing about that number you were going to bring up, Sean. And then I've also been wondering, and I, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, of the people who disapprove. I mean, it's probably some mixture of people who are still mad about the lockdowns and mad about, you know, all sort of the incomprehensible government mandates and, and uh, contradictions, but also people who think he, he still isn't doing enough. Like, I, 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 to Joe's point, there are probably people who disapprove of him on that that think, you know, the U.S. government should be doing what China does, which is locking us all in our houses right now and never letting us out. I assume some people are mad at him for not doing it. Yeah, but Joe, Joe Biden's whole entire message in 2020 was that he was the only person that could get COVID under control. He was the only person that could restore America's uh, prominence on the world stage. He was the only person that could do X, Y, or Z, bring people together, be a moderate, blah, blah, blah. And he's failed every single time. And so I think that a lot of this stuff in this Q poll, I mean, let's 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 go through the numbers, okay? So we we talked about the COVID the response. He's at fifty percent there, while forty three percent disapprove. The response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, he's at forty percent approval, while fifty two percent disapprove. Generally on foreign policy, thirty six percent approve, while fifty five percent disapprove. Which I think that we and we've talked about this before can be totally traced back to Afghanistan. It's this total erosion of his, his approval across the board, completely destroyed the narrative that he was a competent manager or a competent president. On gun violence, 32% approve while 61% disapprove. And then on the economy, the issue that actually matters to most people when they go to balance their checkbook or go to fill up their gas tank, uh, on the economy, 28% of Americans approve while 66% disapprove. And so, like, it, it's interesting to look at that economic number and compare it to his overall approval rating, Joe, that you mentioned about that. He's got a 31 percent approval rating. And that's that's just what, three percent points ahead of his overall approval on the economy. I mean, it's 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 pitiful. And in addition, the other big, uh, uh, at least for me, the takeaway from that poll is that 71 percent of the American people say that they don't, they did not want Joe Biden reelected. Uh, I'll go ahead and bring up the other part of that was that 64% don't want Donald Trump to run in 2024, but we'll see how all that works out. Scott, you know, those are slight, those are slightly different questions, by the way. Um, yes, yeah, do you want, do you want Joe Biden reelected you know, in a vacuum? Your reelect number is often going to be different than if you're matched up in a head to head. It's, it's a slightly different question. I thought that was tricky how they actually worded that. Um, I've seen, you know, I, I've seen other polls showing basically 70 to 80 percent of the American people don't want either Trump or Biden to run again. Um, so, um, you know, the question is, if Biden did run and Trump did run. So all the people who said I didn't want either of them to run, well, now they're having to pick a side. And you wonder, you know, you wonder how that breaks down. I know there have been some head to heads between the two of them out there showing Trump slightly ahead right now. Um, and obviously the election isn't today, but if it were, it's a pretty reasonable chance Donald Trump would beat Joe Biden, despite what, you know, the January 6th committee would say or anybody else. And I think that's a pretty, to Sean's point, that's a pretty 
interesting place for Joe Biden to be, given how he ran his campaign. I mean, remember, he said in a debate that anybody who presided over as many deaths as Donald Trump uh, shouldn't be allowed to be the president. And he's well beyond the death toll from coronavirus on than what than what Trump had. And he had the vaccine the entire time. And so his own his own metrics that, that he said he would judge a president by, he's he's fell well short of, which obviously that and on the economy is why he's suffering in the polls. So the actual job performance and this, this the conditions of the country certainly uh, are are just, are just pummeling Joe Biden. I mean, he, he he's just he's not even treading water. He is just drowning politically uh, with you know right now with that. But at the same time, you have a concerted effort on Capitol Hill. The January sixth committee is as we were are recording this. They are still uh, offering up the testimony uh, on on Thursday night. They've already announced they're going to do another round of this in uh, September. What, Scott, let me ask you first, but I'm going to ask everybody else, and then we'll go to Jared first, and uh, then Kevin, then Sean. Um, because, I mean, obviously, there's, you know, accountability, certainly, and, you know, what actually happened, you know, is, is are, all those things are, are at play. But certainly, there's a political motive as well uh, with January 6th and the way the committee is formed in the first place. But, Scott, uh, is do you have a sense yet of... To, to, to what extent this is affecting Donald Trump's political future? Well, I, I certainly think that um, if you just look at some of the surveys that have come out recently um, on the 2024 campaign, state surveys, national matchups, et cetera, it, it's obvious that some Republicans who voted for Donald Trump twice, maybe gave him money, certainly, you know, really supported him, have decided that it may be better to do something else. doesn't mean they were ever never Trumpers. It just means that they're they're looking for something else. I'm guessing because they think there's a reasonable chance Donald Trump would lose to Joe Biden again or some other Democrat if he were to get the nomination. <clears throat> DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is picking up a lot of these supporters at the moment. The, the national leader of this movement is Mike Pence, uh, who... I guess out of necessity has become the, the figurehead of the, you know, loyal Trump supporter turned let's do something else faction. And uh, he's not benefiting from it, Joe, as much in the polls as DeSantis is right now. Uh, but if you just look at it on balance, the Michigan survey that came out a few days ago showing DeSantis and Trump tied in a Republican primary. There was a New Hampshire survey a few weeks ago that showed DeSantis ahead of Trump. The national surveys still show Trump well ahead of DeSantis, but certainly half the party, roughly half the party is looking for something else here. And Trump still has quite a bit of support, you know, for the, the half that wants to stay with him. And they're, they're pretty solid at the moment, although degraded to some degree. So, yeah, I, I do think it's had an impact on his standing. I still think he's the front runner to get the nomination. I do think there's an obvious opening for him to get it. And I still think his best friend in all of this is fragmentation. If you have 12 people run against him, you know, it makes it likelier for him to be able to get the nomination, even with a degraded base inside the Republican Party. Oh, Scott mentioned that lane of, of, of uh, folks that aren't talked about as much being those that were not never Trumpers. Uh, at the same time, they, uh, they, 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 they voted for him because they liked the other ideas there, and uh, but they're willing to take a different lane now. That's a uh, the Jill Colvin Associated Press article that Scott has put on this week, I encourage everyone to to Google that and look for that. Jerry, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, the the popularity of DeSantis to me signals that there's still this appetite for this this sort of populist, you know, type uh, president in the Republican Party, right? That uh, the the you know uh, the Tom Cottons, the the Tim Scotts, even the, the the Mike Pence's of the world who aren't polling as well. It's clear that that the Republican voters still want somebody who's aggressive like Trump who is, you know, not going to take the BS, who's going to go after the media, who's going to push back on this, like, wokeism. Um, and so it's clear to me that the Republican voters still want somebody like him. They just don't want the baggage, right? January 6th being the biggest baggage of them all. But, you know, there's, there's still small things that over the, the years that, you know, I think Republican voters clearly, you know, coming into 2020 had concerns about with Trump. Um, but it, the the policy of it is is interesting to me um, that you know the, the Republican Party is not trying to return to a Mitt Romney type candidate or somebody like that, right? Uh, in air quotes, kind of a moderate candidate. So it, it will be interesting to see how uh, you know. Again, I, you know, Scott has mentioned this many times that the fragmentation is is Trump's best friend. Um, but, you know, him pitted against DeSantis will be interesting because they are they they run the same lanes on a, on a lot of things. I think, I think Jared, I think Jared's point just to just to put a capper on that is, is exactly right. They I don't know if it's populism or not. I don't know if that's the right term for it. But but I think the meaning of it, Jared, is correct. And that is they want somebody who has all the right enemies, yeah. <laughs> you know, like they they want somebody who the media hates. They want somebody who who has been posted up against the people that they hate, whether it's the media or Andrew Cuomo or, you know, some woke corporation mm-hmm. and has come out on top, you know, like that, that's what they loved about Trump was sort of a, a willingness to fight all these dragons at the same time and not, and not shrink from it. And if there's one thing I learned after 22 years in Republicans, is that, you know, there was always just this rumbling in the base, you know, why don't we fight the media as hard as they mm-hmm. fight us? And Trump comes along and, and he gave it to him. And uh, and and it's not a policy. It's not, you know, populism. It has nothing to do with the economy. It's just it's an attitude. It's a you know, it's a it's a state of mind. It's a it's just a, a you know, a reaction to the world. And DeSantis has picked up on that. And some of it he's created and some of it the world has given him. But he has shown a real instinct for understanding that having all the right enemies is the you know, is the path forward. And as you pointed out, Jared, he gives you that without giving you the baggage of anything that has happened in Washington lately or anything that happened on January 6th, which is a huge electoral bonus, you know, for somebody trying to get elected president in 24. Kevin, in that regard, Mike Pence, certainly, even though he acted patriotically and did his duty on January 6th, that baggage still comes with him regardless. Right. There, there'll be a lot of people that, you know, always wanted to be associated with former President Trump when he was in office. But we've, we've been having this conversation, you know, as Republicans for a while now, what will happen with Trump in 2024? And it's been a theoretical conversation, but it's it's about to become very real. I think he did an interview with New York Magazine not too long ago, where he said, I've already made up my decision to run for president. It's just a matter of when I announce it and hinting that he'll announce before the midterms. Well, that that is coming up really soon. And I, I imagine once he's out there, uh, Scott, you may have a better read on this, but it, he probably won't be the only one out there for long. He'll, other other people will start emerging, and then that that fractious, non-Trump battle will will begin. And I, I, if it begins in public, or if it begins in 
you know, smoky rooms in the background to see who, who's going to take him on. This, this uh, conversation we're having is about to become very real very soon. Yeah, DeSantis has some time because he's on the ballot in Florida. He can, right. you know, he can always say, look, I got to get through my reelection and then we'll make a decision. That's, that's a reasonable thing. Some of the other candidates won't have that luxury. Uh, I guess they could all say, well, we want to, we're putting all our efforts towards the midterms. But, you know, some of these candidates who aren't on the ballot, who don't hold office, who aren't in politics, you know, directly right now, they won't have, as, they won't have that shield uh, to, to hide behind. That's one of the reasons I keep thinking Trump's going to announce soon is to try to flush out some of these folks and, and see who's going to, who's, who's real and who isn't. Um, and, uh, and so we'll see, we'll see how they react to it. I, I mean, the one thing as a positioning matter, Mike Pence is out there saying, you know, basically, I'm, I'm going to give you everything you loved about Donald Trump, except, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to break the Constitution. I'm not going to break our uh, you know, democracy. I'm not going to uh, you know, I'm going to be a rule of law candidate. And at some point, all these other candidates are going to have to answer the Mike Pence question. Do you agree with Mike Pence? What would you have done if you were in his shoes on January 6th? To me, that's that's going to determine the viability of some of these candidacies and whether they are real and whether they can even be distinguished from Donald Trump. If you run and say, I'm exactly like Donald Trump, I think Donald Trump did everything right. And I would have done everything that he did. Then I'm not sure what the rationale for your candidacy is if that other person happens to also be in the race. <laughs> and, and I guess those candidacies are predicated on the idea that maybe Donald Trump ultimately doesn't run or doesn't finish the race. But to me, that's kind of a half-hearted attempt at trying to become president if you're just trying to clone the previous guy. I wonder if Donald Trump realizes that he basically undermined his entire potential second term by January 6th, because Joe Biden's performance since he became president is 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 proving Donald Trump's um, basically the, the his job performance would have been proven just by contrast versus oh, it, January. Oh, my 6th. gosh. If Donald Trump, I mean, this is the I mean, he, he must know this every single day of his life. Had he done nothing? Had he right. literally lost the election right. and said, okay, fine, I'll go back to Florida and play golf. Had he literally done nothing and yep. said nothing. At tonight's podcast, we would be sitting here picking out who was going to hold what cabinet position in the next Trump administration. That's right. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's, that's right. I mean, there would not, there would not be a question. About so, so really then to my earlier point, January 6th does matter. You know, yes. that's what we're seeing right now. And in, in the, plan. the question is, is how much more do those, reverberations go. Sean, do you have any point on this before we, I mean, I'm going to move on to the next one if I can. And that is uh, about electoral politics and about, and, and, and I'm going to combine Joe Biden's appearance in Massachusetts on Wednesday with electoral politics in the midterms, because God bless you, Joe, God bless you for combining those two things. Yes. I'm talking about what, what Scott mentioned a moment ago about wrecking the constitution. And that is the question about executive orders, about executive, about, about declaring national emergencies and, and then taking extraordinary steps. It seems to me, Scott, that Joe Biden is, 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 is sensing that at least maybe has some institutional guardrail still in place that are, that are prompting him not to do, go to the extreme of, uh, of, of basically enacting the climate agenda the Democrats were unable to actually pass legislatively but he's getting a tremendous amount of pressure to go that direction after Joe Manchin, uh, you know, at least in the Democrats perspective, derailed that. So the question is, you know, electorally, this is what I wonder about in terms of it reminds me of what happened in Georgia uh, after the election in, uh, in 2020, 
when they had to do the uh, the runoffs in, in January of 21 uh, and, and for both of those seats. And that is that Donald Trump in that situation as well, completely undermined and get, told people basically don't go to the polls because elections are rigged and they don't really count. So I wonder if a similar thing is going to happen now for Democrats, if they're saying Joe Biden needs to take executive orders because the Congress doesn't count. Is there any parallel there or what do you think? Well, I mean, you've heard Democrats like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez say voting isn't enough. Elections aren't enough, which comes as a surprise to me because I thought that's how we settled our differences in this country, by voting (laughs) and by by, uh, having an election. And then the people we elect enact the policies that the most people prefer. Uh, But but his flank is his left flank is pressuring him to disregard institutions, disregard the Supreme Court, disregard the Congress disregard the norms by which we enact policy in this country. And it's exactly what he ran against. You know, he, he said Donald Trump was destroying our institutions and now his, the progressives in his party are asking him to destroy institutions by ignoring them, <laughs> going around them. And I, and I think somewhere inside of him, he is an institutionalist and you hear it in his voice sometimes, but also he thinks he's running for reelection. He says it. And I would imagine that a many, a great many of the things he does between now and, you know, next year are going to be aimed at staving off a primary from the left. And the way you would do that would be to do the most extremely uh, partisan left wing fever swamp (laughs) type ideas and run with it. Like declaring emergencies about all the things they say are, you know, whatever the emergency of the week is, you know, by declaring an emergency and then taking all the actions that the courts will allow you to take. So he's having this internal battle, I think, between the old institutionalist and the Democrat who's trying to operate in the party as it sits today, which is essentially an authoritarian style party that wants to bypass Congress and the Supreme Court and have, you know, essentially a dictator lay down the law. And uh, and <laughs> I, uh, it's funny, they, they spent a lot of time calling Trump an authoritarian and a dictator. But man alive, to, to ignore Congress and to ignore the Supreme Court, which is what people are asking Joe Biden to do. Um, I don't know what else you'd call it. Well, he's walking up to that line right now as far as, but he's going to, wants to spend about $2 billion, I think, on some uh, cooling relief and things of this nature, for, you know, with, with what's going on with the, uh, with his, and, and, and of course his announcement uh, in Massachusetts had to do with, you know, reconfiguring uh, a uh, former coal plant to be a, a, a cable manufacturer to be able to, uh, transmit electricity from offshore wind installations. That, to if the there was US. only if there was only a tube of cooling relief that Joe Biden could squeeze out on this country <laughs> in order to in order to solve all of his problems, I I, I really I hope he finds it. Sean, you have to uh, re- refresh it because you brought this up in the first minute of the podcast. I said we get a rack around to it about uh, J- Joe Biden diagnosing himself with cancer. This happened yesterday, or Wednesday, at the uh, this announcement in Massachusetts. I mean, there's not much to get around to the fact that he he told a story, uh, which he's told before, about um, oil slick being on the windshields growing up. And that, you know, a few years ago, he told the story and it was that everyone, including himself, uh, had asthma as a result of it. But this time when he told the story, he said uh, lots of people he grew up with and he himself had cancer as a result of uh, this oil slick on the windshields. And he did this little motion with his finger, like, yes, if he was wiping off a windshield. So, I mean, 
that that's the story there, Joe. I mean, I don't know what else to say about that. <laughs> but we went from one one health scare to a next for Joe Biden from Wednesday until Thursday. I mean, I, it, I mean it, it's a little concerning because I, I feel like there was there was a lot of coverage about the fact that he he said this online, like online. There was a lot of pickup about this. But I mean, d- does anyone on this podcast know if if anyone in the White House press corps or or asked? The, the the white house press secretary like what the president meant by that or no does? look look no the, I mean, the issue here is is that we we have come to expect and i guess we have just come to allow for the fact that joe biden fabricates his personal narrative some issue about it every day i mean whether it's getting arrested with nelson mandela or fighting corn pop at the pool or <laughs> or having asthma no cancer i mean the guy, the guy's whole personal narrative is now largely made up of clearly fabricated <laughs> anecdotes, which he says in moments that are designed for him to try to connect with audiences. What, what, he what has is this worse? bizarre? He has this bizarre need to try to relate to audiences or to or to make his own personal narrative as as bad as possible because he thinks it helps him connect with other human beings. But in in the, and I guess when you're like the Senator from Delaware, you can get away with it. You know, it's like being just sort of a, you know, that kind of a a politician that that tells whoppers and everybody just laughs about it, you know, out in the country or whatever. (laughs) But when you're the president of the United States, I think we, you know, we certainly held Trump to a standard of honesty I mean, the media took great glee in counting every lie. The media investigated his golf scores. The media, you know, I mean, they, they, they looked at every single word he ever uttered. And the mission was to, to make it seem like Donald Trump never told the truth. Well, let me just tell you something, folks. Joe Biden rarely tells the truth in full. He frequently makes things up. He often mangles things to the point where you can't tell if he knows the truth or not. And it's, you know. Because Trump didn't tell the truth, which I acknowledge, it's like we've decided that it's okay if Joe Biden maybe tells the truth slightly more than he did, and that therefore makes him virtuous. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy, my but word, that's how I he gets treated. Word as a Joe, my as as, as a Joe. <laughs> <laughs> no joke. No joke. No joke. I give you my word as a Joe. Jared, you wanted to make a point, then to Kevin. Yeah, I was uh, just quickly on the um, uh, emergency power stuff, which we've, we've moved on from a little bit here. But, um, you know, during the, the COVID pandemic, governors across the country, both red and blue, got, you know, really used to these emergency powers and, and really started to like them. And then legislators uh, across the country, both red and blue, really stepped up and put a lot of good guardrails uh, in both here in Kentucky and in some other, again, red and blue states. Uh, to limit some of these emergencies. The idea uh, that every issue you care about is an emergency and therefore we wipe away the legislative process is really, really dangerous. Um, I use this analogy sometimes that when levees broke in New Orleans, that was an emergency. Rebuilding the city was not. Uh, you know, And so there are absolutely emergencies. There are weather emergencies. There are uh, health and virus and all there there are true emergencies in which those those powers matter for short times the idea that you use those on every issue you care about for an unlimited amount of time with unchecked uh you know unchecked by a legislative body is really dangerous james madison would be rolling in his grave if he 
saw these quotes from Joe Biden. James Madison is the wrong one to bring up because I don't know if you've heard, but they've scrubbed his presidency from his home. <laughs> if you, this is, this is a scene red heard perhaps, but go to Montpellier and you'll see the, um, the James Madison, basically they are completely now focusing on the fact that he was a slave owner versus the fact that he was a president. Do a little, do a little Google search on James mm-hmm. Madison. Kevin, I'm going to get uh, to you. And then I want to, before we wrap it up tonight, I do want to start a series of just some capsule updates on uh, key Senate races. We're going to go to Ohio here in a moment, but Kevin, go ahead. Yeah, just, you know, Scott calls, says that Biden has this inner institutionalist, but he's been dragged to the left on these executive actions before. I mean, you think about trying to extend the housing eviction moratorium, all the things he did on the VAX mandate and, you know, closing businesses, even what his EPA has been doing. And he's gotten smacked down repeatedly in the courts, especially the Supreme Court. Thank God for Mitch McConnell. Thank you, President Trump, for the the Supreme Court that we have. So, you know, he may end up going way out on a limb with some some wacko executive order or trying to uh, put up abortion tents at uh, Abraham Lincoln's birthplace. But uh, he's gotten smacked down before, and maybe he just doesn't want his lunch handed to him again by uh, some justices. Um, and then uh, to, to move right into Ohio, uh, that yes. transition was really natural. Uh, yeah, really excited about this new series, uh, you know, getting a perspective on, on an individual race. Uh, in Ohio this year, friend of the pod, Rob Portman, uh, the senator there, is retiring. So we have an open race. Um, you know, Tim Ryan is the Democrat congressman. He's been there for 10 terms. And I, I forgot until I looked into him that he actually ran for House Democratic leader against Nancy Pelosi in 2016. And then he ran for president again in 2020. So Tim Ryan certainly thinks a lot about Tim Ryan. And uh, he's really good at losing some big races. Uh, and then on the other side, uh, J.D. Vance is the Republican nominee. He won a feisty primary in May. Uh, feisty is probably the nicest word you could call it. Uh, he's, he's the author of Hillbilly Elegy, a veteran and a former S- Supreme Court clerk. And uh, he, he was endorsed by President Trump. He's been endorsed by you know, billionaire Peter Thiel and some other big names. Um, the last p- real good poll on this was in May after the primary, and it had Vance up by uh, three points, I think, just a, a couple points. Um, and there have been some other polls uh, that might have uh, Ryan up since then, but but the fundraising is the, is the real news this week. All their numbers have been coming out lately, and uh, Ryan raised nine point one million dollars in the last quarter, which is more than four times what Vance did. So Ryan's been up on TV. He's been advertising a lot on Fox News, saying things that you'd expect a Republican to say, like it's us versus China. And uh, Vance hasn't been able to do this yet, but uh, really looking forward to talking about it. There's already been seventy four million dollars in this race. Um, it's you know quickly shaping up to be one of the most expensive Senate races in the country this cycle. Um, and uh, looking, looking forward to talking about it. Scott, uh, uh, Kevin mentioned just how uh, fractious that primary was. Uh, as far as the amount of time between the primary and the, and the general, uh, how much work does J.D. Vance have to do to coalesce the, uh, the support there? Yeah, great question. You know, the, the primary in Ohio was very ugly. Uh, lots of millions of dollars in negative ads run against Vance uh, and his uh, affiliates. Um, it, and so it'll take some time for his image to recover. Uh, however, Ohio is very fertile ground for Republicans. It's, it's actually a better state for Trump in the margin of victory in 16 and 20 than Texas was. So you think about the pantheon of red states, Ohio has, has gotten redder. 
And Vance, of course, will, will benefit from this. What Ryan is benefiting from is what all Democrat Senate candidates benefit from, and that's essentially having unlimited resources. I mean, we've seen this in, in all these Senate, Senate races around the country the last couple of cycles. Democrat Senate candidates just get money from everywhere all the time, every day, and they will probably end the campaign with millions in the bank. I mean, in, in 20, we had several losing candidates uh, for Senate on the Democrat side in their campaigns with millions of dollars in the bank. It's like the movie Brewster's Millions. You know, you just you, you try to spend it all before a deadline and you, and you can't you can't spend it all. And uh, and Ryan's going to get this. Um, so I think of all the Senate races that Republicans are defending territory, this is the one I worry about the least, if only because Trump did so well there and it appears to be moving you know, more towards the Republican Party each of the last several elections. Certainly since I was there in 2012, it's moved dramatically to the right. I've, I've so lost track, Scott, of, of, in terms of the overall, you know, that you've, you've said for quite a long time that Senate's 50-50, how important is Ohio to the Republican chances of being able to regain Senate control? Well, I mean, look, you if you figure it's 50-50 out there and you've got a, a couple of really good pickup opportunities, Nevada and New Hampshire, a couple of okay ones, Georgia and Arizona, one wild card, Colorado. I mean, you've got some pickup opportunities, but but if you were picking up seats, you can't lose on the other side of the, of the algebra here. And so uh, to lose Ohio would be very, very bad, especially when you consider that I think Democrats consider their top targets to be Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. If we lost Ohio, which is, I think, down the, down the list for them, it would be, you know, I mean, that, that would be difficult. Uh, and it would probably mean something else was going on in the electoral firmament that made it harder for Republicans to win. You just need a net one. Uh, but getting a net one means losing as, as little ground as possible while, while taking advantage of your pickup opportunities. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say Republicans are favored here uh, because of the state. But that doesn't mean you can't, it doesn't mean you can do nothing. I mean, if you're J.D. Vance, you do have to raise money. You do have to put up a fight. And I think he will ultimately have the resources needed to win. You mentioned, uh, you know, as far as, you know, and overcoming a deficit where he is right now. Uh, next week, I want to talk to you. Uh, our next Senate profile will be uh, in Georgia. I did mention in last week's podcast, though, I did want to follow up on one question I had, uh, which is that I, I had heard um, one of my various uh, much scrutinized uh, media outlets that I follow that uh, that Ralph Warnock, could potentially be a, uh, a, a Democratic candidate for president in 24 if in a Biden, if in a, if in a Republican wave election year, that he still beats Herschel Walker and prevails in a full term in U.S. Senate, would he then, would he emerge after the midterms, assuming that Republicans, let's, let's, let's say Republicans take the Senate and, uh, and take, the, uh, take the House, certainly, but somehow, but Ralph Warnock survives. Does that, where does that put him? I like that you call him Ralph. First Reverend. Of all. Reverend Ralph. It's, 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 it's Raphael. It's Raphael. <laughs> oh, it's Raphael. You, you've called him the wrong name every time. <laughs> it's great. Oh. And it's, it's like, it's like perfectly encapsulates. Who am, I, like, who am I thinking? Ralph Northam, maybe. Okay, never mind. Okay. Raphael Warnock. I apologize. I, two I, very I, different people <laughs> <laughs> for a lot of reasons. <laughs> yes, including their wardrobe. All right. <laughs> right. All right, Scott. Anyway, your thoughts on the Reverend. I know you're in love with this idea that he's going to be the next president. I, I mean, look, Democrats have a short bench if Biden doesn't run. So I guess it makes 
multiple people viable, uh, or at least multiple people part of the conversation. I have not seen his name thrown around anywhere except from you on this podcast. So if he becomes the president, you'll be, I guess, considered just the way you you in, invented the phrase hindsight is 2020. You will have basically invented the idea that Raphael Warnock could be the president. So we'll, we'll lay down a marker today. Joe, your idea. Joe, will, Joe will be his White House press secretary. <laughs> when I, when I invite, but here's the thing. It was a really good thought when I did invent that phrase because it will come to fruition when your hindsight will become 2020 with President Warnock. All right. Uh, a real quick scene, Red Herd, because I do want to uh, send out birthday wishes to my nephew, Xavier Ryan Steffensmeyer in Nebraska, student at University of Nebraska, Omaha, who celebrated his 21st birthday on the day of the moon landing anniversary. What is so funny, Sean? Sean is Sean's losing it. All right. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. The moon landing? <laughs> okay. All right. All right, July twentieth is his birthday. All right, any 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 other uh, any other observations from this week other than any birthdays you guys want to honor before we move on? Scott, when do you want CNN next? Uh, well, um, by the time this podcast is uh, aired, I will have been on late at night with Don Lemon following the January sixth hearing. Uh, so uh, late late Thursday night, and then I'm on Friday morning on CNN New Day. Friday afternoon on the lead with Jake Tapper, and then I'll be on Sunday morning uh, on State of the Union, and then back on sometime Monday and or Tuesday. So I've got, got a fair number of appearances, and I'm sure sure a lot of it will be focused on January 6th and the, some of the stuff we covered tonight regarding the, the state of the Biden presidency. Any thoughts, gentlemen, before we go? Is it time? It's time. It's time. I have not seen, read, or heard anything. You're still getting over jet lag from your Parisian vacation. Oh, I'm sorry, your your study session. Whenever it was. That's Joe, it for we'll, this week. We'll talk about this privately, Joe. We'll talk about That's this right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. Thanks for listening. For Jared Crawford, Kevin Grout, Sean Southard, and Scott Jennings, I am Joe Arnold. Thank you for listening to Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Mm-hmm.